Well, we have nine more holes to go, so how about you two fellas follow me to the 10th tee? On to the back nine, hour number two of Real Golf Radio with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper, son of Hall of Famer Billy Casper. Two players down the middle on the 10th hole. Here's Brian and Bob. Well, thank you very much, and welcome in to hour number two of Real Golf Radio. I'm Brian Taylor. He's Bob Casper. At Real Golf is the Twitter handle. You can find us on SiriusXM 203, iHeartRadio on various different channels and networks, and where your favorite podcast is found. Our flagship station's 97.5 DKSL Sports Zone in Salt Lake City, Utah. 20, what, four years, Bob? We going on 24 years now? Of doing this show, yeah, we're we're midway through our twenty fourth year. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So we got a pretty good one coming up yeah. next year. Yeah, that'll be fun. Uh, we have heard from Boyd Summerhays. We are going to hear from the caddy coming up. We've heard some of the comments from Wyndham Clark, Scotty Scheffler, uh, Ricky Fowler, and some of the participants. We'll play some of that coming up as well. You know what? It was again the theme for me, Bob is. It was a it was a Wyndham Clark victory. It was a perseverance. It was a guy that found himself. I you know what? Let me rephrase that. It's a guy that put himself in a situation that he had never been yeah. before, and then had the faith in his own abilities to not falter and and spit the bit. Right? I mean, we see that so often. People get in an uncomfortable situation. Think about it just on your own. If you're listening, you've all of a sudden made three birdies in a row. How how do you feel? Right there's all of a sudden you're outside your comfort level. I don't make three birdies in a row very often. So how if you do you choose to look at it that way? But that's it. That's <laughs> that, and I'm trying to learn. I've really been listening and trying to study what Wyndham Clark said and what he did and that belief that he had in himself. It's yeah. a little bit like we like Michael Block at the PGA, right? His whole thing on his golf ball. Why not? Why not? Yep. Or Ted Lasso. Ten second. Be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. That's, you know, and you know what, though? Isn't it hard? It's a lot easier to say forget the bad stuff than it is to forget the good stuff. I mean, the, the good stuff sometimes is worse, right? Yeah, I mean, well, the good, well, the good stuff, you're, uh, the good stuff you don't remember. The bad stuff is what you remember. And what you actually should be focusing on is the good stuff and what's gotten you to that point right there. Well, I think I think if you were to actually go a little deeper, you should just be focused on what your the present moment and not what you just did, whether yeah. it was good or bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are we? We we just play psychologists on the radio. Don't don't worry. Got a little Barbara. We stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> that's that's a good one. Hey, Express. Stay, <laughs> stay tuned. Uh, we'll get into it. Continuing to look back at the 123rd U.S. Open right here on Real Golf Radio. Now, back to Real Golf Radio with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper. This segment is brought to you in part by Black Desert Resort. Check out blackdesertresort.com. Hey, the construction is ongoing with the Resort Center Hotel, the Residential Villages, the Water Park, and all the retail, shopping, dining. All of that is still under construction, but... You can still go out and play the 18-hole championship design by Tom Weisskopf. It is available, and while the resort is being uh, built, it is open to the public. Check out blackdesertresort.com. Book your tea time today and go experience what is Black Desert at blackdesertresort.com. Not to mention, it is home of the 2025 Black Desert Championship on the LPGA Tour. So pretty cool stuff there. Hey, Bob, let's uh, talk more about our winner, Wyndham Clark. I mean, this guy played some phenomenal golf, and I loved what he said afterwards. 
it's really you might not have known a whole lot about Wyndham Clark before last week, but you know you got to love him after. And some of these comments. Here's what he had to say immediately after winning the U.S. Open. I started off great and I felt really good and confident about um, my game. You know, unfortunately I bogeyed the second hole, but I felt like I rebounded well and birdied in the fourth. You know, I got a little unlucky on on hole eight, but I just felt like I bounced back and kept my emotions about me and. Um, you know, I hit some great shots coming down at the end, and although I made a couple bogeys and it seemed like maybe uh, the rails were coming off, I was inside pretty, uh, pretty calm. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased with myself with how I performed. So he was uh, adding the two together, whether he was coming off the rails or whether <laughs> the wheels were falling off. But uh, either way, it did appear that that might happen. And it just didn't. Uh, just your thoughts. Uh, again, we talked about this in the first hour, but on how he was able to maintain his composure in such a, a, a tough situation, a stressful situation. Well, he's proven that he's a great competitor and he loves, he loves winning golf tournaments. Um, you know, we talk about number eight, making bogey there, but how about the save at number nine when he was in the deep stuff, just off the edge of the green and he chipped it up past the hole up onto the hill and brought it all the way back down, that was rolled stellar. it all the way back down to seven feet and then made that for par. That was, that was huge going to the back nine and keeping that momentum going. Yeah, it just he seemed to do that time and time again, didn't he? Which was pretty amazing. Yep. And uh, he yep. was asked about the emotions that you have to deal with and uh, in, in that situation. I'm a, a fast player in the sense of once I get up to hit it, I just hit it. Um, you know, maybe my putting's a little slower now these days, but, uh, you know, when I pull the trigger hitting, uh, I'm fast. And so when things were going a little sideways or even good, I want to go fast. And I've just learned that I have to think slow and um, just kind of let things come to me and take it as it comes. And, you know, I think the only time that I didn't was on the par three, um, was that 15. I kind of just lost my focus a little bit. It was, uh, it was a terrible wet shot. But um, but I, honestly, after that, even the bogey on 16, it's a it's tough, tough tee ball. You hit in the bunker. Um, but I... I hit some great shots coming down on 17 and 18, so um, I felt like I, I kept my motions um, at check as much as I could until, until the green on 18. You know, you learn a lot about the guy, Bob, when he, mm -hmm. you see him hit that shot on 14. He had to wait. And we know how tough 14 is. And by the way, how about the caddy? We'll talk to him coming up. He called it last <laughs> week on the show. He had a premonition that something would happen on 14 that would change the tournament. Yep. And it did. Rory, you know, making bogey and Wyndham making birdie there. And not, not that it may have changed the outcome, but that certainly sealed it in, in a lot of ways, Rory's fate. But, you know, for him to pull wait and wait and wait and then to pull that shot off knowing all the trouble that could happen – and, and then not only that, right, that's the performance side, but then managing the adversity that came when he hit a bad shot on 15, when he drove it in the bunker on 16, you know, th those kind of things down the stretch, you learn a lot about him from that standpoint as well. Yeah, the the second shot, the three-wood on 14, um, you know, a, a big cut starting out at the 15th hole, uh, or the 15th tee and cutting it right into that gap that, and, you know, getting it up there within uh, about 25 feet, 20 feet, something like that. And, and it looked like he hit a good putt, but he was just fine with it being dead weight, oh, yeah. only four or five inches from the hole to the right and making it in and, and jumping to a three shot lead. But like you said, he got a little ahead of himself on the next hole, uh, cost him a bogey in the bunker on 16, but, I'll tell you what, uh, the shots he hit coming down the stretch on 17 
and also the one into the green on 18 right in the middle of the green and two putting from 60 plus feet um, was phenomenal. Uh, another dead weight putt that he could just tap in and become the U.S. Open champion. He was asked what he would like people to know about him if they're just kind of tuning in on this big stage, and he described a little bit about his uh, competitive nature. I feel like I'm one of the best players in the world, and, you know, obviously this is just shows that what I believe is uh, can happen, And um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm a pretty humble, calm guy, and I, I don't try to get too high or too low in things, and... Um, you know, I'm obviously going to celebrate this, but I, I like to compete. I like to, I like to play against, I'm so competitive. I want to beat everybody, uh, but also be friends with everybody. So I'm trying to, I try to, you know, have a good mix of that. I love that. I think that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. My dad used to tell me when I was growing up playing high school sports, you know, you're everybody's friend off the field, but when you're on the field, you're no one's friend, right? You just, you got to go after these guys. You know, they they could be your best friends, but you're competing against them in the team environment to try to earn your position in the starting lineup, for instance. But then, you know, when you're off the field, you're you're friends with everybody. And same thing with your competitors. That's a hard balance. But, and it's a lot of people that can come up and say, I feel like I'm one of the best players in the world. I feel like yeah. I belong. I feel like I can win. You know, sometimes it's actually believing that. Saying it's one yeah. thing, but actually believing it. He believes it, but in a humble kind of way, a little bit different than the bravado that Brooks Kepka kind of exudes in that same vein. But, you know, I, I just, I loved what he had to say. And there's so much more. If you, if you have a chance to hear his whole interview, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Um, I think a lot of, you know, his wind at the, um, at the Wells Fargo, um, validated what he feels about himself and his place in the game right now with the top players. That being a a uh, designated event uh, with 120 or however many of the top players in the world, and he goes out and beats them. And then he feels like he should have won at Memorial, another designated event uh, hosted by Jack Nicholas. And then he comes to the U.S. Open, and when it comes down the stretch, he does what he feels he is in his heart and in his mind, and that's a competitor and a guy that's one of the top players in the world. So it was really fun to watch him. And, and I kept thinking the whole round through, I kept thinking, okay, when's he, when's, when are things going to happen to where he gets some adversity? And that came late in the round that really could have cost him, but he didn't let it. And, uh, and he went on to win. So um, my hat's off to him. What a great player. Um, he's got a phenomenal talent. Um, he went from, what was it, 162nd or 163rd beginning the year in the world to 32nd after last week, and now he's 13th in the world this week. And that shows his belief system and what he's been able to do with his golf game this year and win a couple of tournaments, including a major yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, that's well said, Bob. And and yeah, what a rise. No question about it. He's on the big stage. He'll be playing a, at uh, Royal Liverpool uh, coming up in a few weeks' time with the rest of the guys and competing for a Claret Jug. So, um, look, I, I, I love his confidence and I love his, his attitude. Let, I'll, I'll say this. I found... This can segue a little bit into our next uh, topic, and we'll continue that with the caddy, and that's on LACC. But I found Sunday, and this is no reflection on the players uh, or the golf course necessarily, but I found it to be a little boring on Sunday. It was a little flat. Uh, It felt to me like 
two boxers standing in the ring for about eight rounds, and they were just <laughs> kind of they were just kind of bouncing around and and jabbing and sparring a little bit, and nobody really took any shots. And so what I mean by that is that it's like I kept waiting for some momentum swings. Tommy Fleetwood way ahead of the group shot sixty three, good for him. Um, and we can talk about him when we lead up to the Open Championship because I I had mentioned that it might be a Fleetwood special there at LACC. Right. It just kind of came a little too late, so maybe Liverpool yeah. is another one. To, he's a, certainly a guy. That's and that's trendy. his second sixty three in a final round in a U.S. Open. In a US the first Open, one coming on. at Shinnecock. Right, right. I mean, Fleetwood and Miller, right? I mean, the only difference <laughs> is Miller won. So, uh, but but, uh, but I'll, I'll say this. I came to appreciate, and what actually stuck with me and started to draw me in was the perseverance of a guy in Wyndham Clark yeah. that had all of the reasons playing in, you know, in, in, in an environment that he was unfamiliar with, with all of the others chasing him that, other than Ricky, that had, you know, major championship success already. Yep. That was compelling in and of itself to see how he handled the situation. And he did so masterfully and like a true champion. And at the end of the day, he is the U.S. Open champion. Now, that kind of leads into, was it LACC? Was that part of it? What did you think? Did it not really provide what we wanted to? You know, all of those kind of things. I, I want to get your take on that, Bob. I have some thoughts. Scotty Scheffler offered some thoughts. We'll get the caddy as well when we come back and continue as we look back on the 123rd U.S. Open at L.A. Country Club. You're listening to Real Golf Radio. You're listening to Real Golf Radio. Talking golf with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper. One day you'll get it. Here's Brian and Bob. You're listening to Real Golf Radio. Welcome back to the show. Brian Taylor, Bob Casper with you. And right now it's time for America's favorite caddy. There are bag rats. <laughs> and then there are caddies. Baby. Pro jocks who are legends in caddy shacks across the PGA Tour. While we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of this legendary looper, here he is. The Caddy on Real Golf Radio. Caddy joins us weekly right here on Real Golf Radio and excited to get his take on the U.S. Open and L.A. Country Club specifically, how it handled and provided a test for the U.S. Open winner. Caddy, how are you? Caddy's just chilling. All right. Love it. Summertime. Full-on summer, officially summer. It is. It's officially summer now. Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday it was. So we got that going for us. It's starting to get shorter already. <laughs> hey, let's enjoy the uh, long days while we got them. But, yes, I guess technically it is uh, starting to shorten up every day. Slightly. Ever so slightly. Yes. So, Caddy, uh, LACC, um, we had a lot of great things to say about it be- leading into it. And there's some people that don't think that it necessarily measured up as a U.S. Open venue. I'm not saying that I'm one of those. In fact, I actually really like the the venue, and I think they should have it again. I think it's a nice mix, and I love that they set the golf course up the way it was intended and let the players play instead of trying to trick it up. What what was your ultimate take uh, watching the final round and how it all unfolded, and specifically as the country LACC as the venue? I thought the uh, it was a pretty exciting tournament to watch, which and it, it kind of came down to things you kind of expect to see at a U.S. Open. Um, where hitting it in the rough was costly and the conditions were pretty firm and running and there was a lot of pressure. And so that was, that was pretty much, that was good. I just, um, you know, I've got this old school 
idea in my head that we have to have um, the U.S. Open is, tries to be the sternest test of the year, the most demanding golf course. And the main part of that forever was you've got to drive the ball well. And for me, there's just too much room out there where you can drive it pretty far offline and be just fine. Now, the rest of the course from there on in was tremendous from a U.S. Open standpoint. And the course as it is, is a really good golf course and cool to play, et cetera. But I'm just a narrow fairway U.S. Open guy. That's just hmm. it's going to be hard to remove that from my DNA. So didn't you think that the golf course got pretty bouncy that last day and it was extremely tough to get the ball close to the hole? Hence, that's why you saw scores that were closer or around even par than anything else. Yes, and the holes that were extremely long, going to the rolling back the golf ball idea, like 13 and 17, um, they played really tough, even though 17 is not a humongously wide fairway. 13 is. Um, but they played really tough with the length and all that. So, yeah. It, I mean, it absolutely looked, outside of somebody hitting it in high rough, it looked like a U.S. Open for really the last three days. Everything but the first day. So, the ball was kind of bouncing like you'd expect it to see and things like that. So, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a cool golf course. I mean, the par threes are just they're so good. Crazy good. Caddy's so, joining us. Play. Yeah, Caddy's joining us here on Real Golf Radio. So I, I guess let me ask you this: What did you think about Shinnecock and the setup? Because I thought the fairways were fairly wide compared to maybe years past at Shinnecock. I I like I liked, I, I liked the setup there. Um, <laughs> obviously, Chambers Bay was pretty wide open, and a lot of people didn't like that. I, I didn't I didn't hate Chambers Bay so much for the the width of the fairways as I did is just a difficult spectator course and the greens, the fescue greens at the time, they've changed that now. Those were, those were kind of tough. They got a little brutal at the end of the day, but I, so I guess I'm just trying to, to pick your brain. Like I, I don't necessarily think a U.S. open has to be in a cookie cutter, you know, winged foot, you know, kind of, uh, format every single year. I mean, I think that's okay that that's the general rule, and this is not disparaging against Wingfoot, just simply I think that's the prototypical layout that you're talking about. Because I, I, I thought it was I thought it was entertaining. Obviously ten under par is not what they typically like to see, but I thought they the guys played really well to get there. I would like to go back. I'm not a historian enough to say um we go way back through the entire history of the US Open. How much did we stray? on courses we played from what we might, you know, what are we going to call it? Like the Oakmont Wingfoot model, um, yeah. so to speak. Um, how many courses did we play that weren't like that and were wide open off the tee? I'm going to say, like, I know of none prior to Aaron Hills. as zero. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, we could call Ben Kenshaw and say, hey, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, were they playing some places with big old fairways? For the U.S. Open, but I don't. So I don't. I'm, I'm ignorant on that. So, but in my history, going back to if we run it back to the '50s and run through, I'm pretty sure you know until we got to Aaron Hills, I don't think we had wide fairways. 
ever. So it's an interesting little change in philosophy or change and let's try this. Um, let's, let's, let's try something different. And at Chittacock, the last time we played, my, my pre, my previous time, the previous time at Chittacock to that, um, you know, I was caddying in the final couple final groups or last second to last groups and things like that. So that was the brutal Shinnecock that everybody was complaining about and lost control and this and that. And yeah, there were, there were some things that were, <clears throat> were pretty crazy there, but, um, I like that <laughs> because I can't say I like that to that extreme, but I like the fairways were narrower for sure. Um, yeah. I remember walking out on the third fairway the last time I was there for the Brooks Kepka win. And it was just, I was like, wow, this fairway's wide. And then the number five, Ooh, this one's pretty big too. And I don't know. I look, I, I'm just going to sound like a broken record. I like narrower fairways at the U S open that make it a really demanding driving test. So what do you consider yeah. narrow and what do you consider wide? So narrow is running them from like 28 to 32 or 35. So the 13th fellow chambers Bay was 105 yards wide. The 18th fairway at LA country club was 57, 59, 57, something like that yards wide at 300. Um, on a, on a big hole, a 500 yard par four, you know, I wouldn't want to see it much wider than 35. That's pretty narrow. Not yeah. ne- but not necessarily down to that 26, 28 width. Well, the 12 hole at Chambers Bay was 21 and the 13th hole was, uh, was 105. That's a pretty big difference, but the 12 hole is drivable. It was a short little drivable hole. So, yeah. So no, I, um, yeah, I think, I think really if I, I'm, I'm agreeing with, I saw Paul McGinley talking about, uh, LA North and I was just right in, I agreed with, I love what he said about it. I said, there's a few holes, three or four holes where you narrow the fairways there and you got a crazy classic, awesome U.S. open course. Boom. Just like that. Even if it was soft the first day, you wouldn't have seen, you would have seen a 66, not a 62. Probably. And that might be a little extreme, but you wouldn't have seen that the kind of day that made everybody that we wouldn't be having this conversation. Let's put it that way. Hmm. All right. So you would, in your opinion, yay or nay on going back? You're an A. I'd like to see him go back there and narrow a few fairways. There you go. Okay. Well, let's not beat a dead horse. Um, what did you think about uh, Wyndham Clark and the way he held up? You said it was an exciting U.S. Open. I actually thought it was a little flat in the final round, and it took me some really honing in on Wyndham Clark. to, to That's what finally grabbed me. When he hit the shot in on 14, made a couple bogeys on 15 and 16, but then was able to hold on you know, down the stretch with all those multiple major winners around him, and he was the one that just seemed to just – keep his he was controlling his game and it was that's what that's what became exciting to me otherwise I just was a a little I thought it was a little flat from the challengers I just expected a little bit more of a push from Scheffler and Rory and Fowler and you know those guys no question there I mean all those guys you mentioned did not play well everyone every one of them would tell you yeah I was off today and so that's why it was like that but at the same time um, the U.S. Open's often 
a battle of attrition. That's what it's yeah. supposed to be. It's not. It's not necessarily the guy plays a great. But I don't know who came up with this line, but I think a great description of what we're used to seeing at U.S. Opens historically is nobody wins the U.S. Open; people lose the U.S. Open. And so that's yeah, so kind of what happened. It's not like a back nine at Augusta where you get all the roars and everything. Yeah, it's very, it's very rare for someone to win the U.S. Open. You could say Tom Watson won the U.S. Open at Pebble by chipping in on 17 and birdieing 18. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody lost that one. But most of the time, <clears throat> the U.S. Open's lost and not won. And mm, that was definitely the, that, that was the case at, at, at L.A., you know. You could you could kind of say Wyndham won it, kind of, but no one was going to win it on those on that stretch because you just you just couldn't play those last bunch of holes under par. Like it was a great job to play thirteen through eighteen even par, right? Which is what Scotty or Scheffler even, did. I mean, which is super impressive. Even the hole back night, yeah. But no one, you know, but he need it's to, to shoot two or three. He needed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we saw some guys who were really hot on the back nine, like three or four or five under, and then all of a sudden ended up shooting like two or three at best, right? So it just was tough, man. Those last three holes. Wow. Hey, and by the well, way, and, and sorry, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say the other thing that they just couldn't get the ball close enough to the hole on that back nine, too. I mean, you saw Wyndham Clark on the 14th hole hit that, that three wood in there and, and get it to about 20 feet. But for the most part, the guys – the guys never ever got really, really good, solid quality looks coming down the stretch. It was all, it was all putts of 20, 20 feet plus. Yeah. I think maybe that's why Brian's statement, you know, it's just, there was kind of, how do you, how do you beat Wyndham Clark at that U S open? You hope he makes another bogey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You don't, you don't make a birdie. You hope he makes another bogey. So it was kind of, yeah, I mean, I could see that. It just, look, those guys were just, they were just a little off. You know, Scotty, Scotty didn't get out. He, on the front nine, you know, he kind of didn't do this, didn't do that there. And all of a sudden I think he turned it even on the front, right? Maybe. Yeah. And you just couldn't turn it even on the front nine if you were four shots behind. That you, It was pretty much over the way things were going because there's no way you're shooting four on the back nine. So, no, and like you said, and Rory them. made that bogey on fourteen. Yeah, when he had yeah. a wedge in I his mean, hand. If Rory, if Rory makes a better swing off the tee on fourteen, he might be the U.S. Open champion. And that's that's about as U.S. Open as it gets, <laughs> right? Because um, he's probably you know. But then again, who knows? I mean, that that fourteenth hole, it was. I think it's a great par five. A lot of people probably don't. I, I could see people not liking it because it's really hard to do anything with getting on it in two. Uh, you have to have the back left pin placements or the left side, back left side pin placements to have any reason at all to go for that green in two. So a lot of guys maybe don't like that. But I just thought, man, I love par fives where it's an over par scoring average and they're not goofy. And that hole's not goofy. And it's over and over par scoring average. And it's like 16 at Firestone. That's just a great par five. And uh, I, I like those a lot. 
got pretty cool. And the caddy's premonition came true, which is just remarkable. I'm sitting there watching it. I'm like, caddy, I'm like freaking Rory right in the middle of the fairway with a wedge. He puts it in the face of the bunker, an embedded ball, and makes bogey and, and Wyndham right behind him is waiting, waiting, waiting. And then he hits a stud shot, shot of the tournament up there onto the green two putts for birdie. And, and there you go. So I was like, look at the caddy. Caddy says last week on the show, I don't know. I just have this weird feeling that something's going to happen on 14 that's going to alter or affect the outcome of the tournament. I'm like, okay. And boom, there it was, 14th hole. Yeah, that was an easy thing to come up with, too, looking at the golf course. <laughs> you just you could see someone going for 14 and making a double um, with with the pins to the right. And you're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And you, it was mostly actually, my thoughts were actually about the pins on the more the frontish and rightish side of the green, where it was hard to, I mean, there's just not much room to even hit a wedge shot in there. And if you miss it yeah. long in the bunker, that's no good. If you miss it short in the front bunker, that's no good. There's nowhere to hit it there. And if you go for it too and hit it a little right of the green, I don't know if you guys noticed when you were there, but there's like a 25-foot vertical downslope to the right there. You don't want any part of hitting it long right there or right of the green there. So, you know, that's – and if you – if you went for it in two with a, a rightish pin, you're going to miss it left and you got nothing to work with. So no one's really going to go for it in those cases. But I thought maybe someone would, I thought, I thought the Sunday pin would be more like in the front right of the green there. Um, that's why kind of why I said that, but it just, yeah, it just worked out that you know, Rory's Rory's uh, Rory was in a very good place in that fairway for his third shot. That was not, that was kind of a cake shot for a world-class player to knock in there fairly close. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if he misjudged wind or, or what happened there. Maybe he just made a, a little bit of a bad swing at a bad time, but um, that was a real, I was really surprised when that ball went in there. I was like, Oh no, <laughs> that's it for the tournament's over. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Caddy, can you hang on? I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, more on Wyndham and some of his strategy. Plus, uh, I teased it last week, but a little bit of yardage book discussion. I, I thought, you know, with Johnny Miller and we chatted with him this week and him talking about his uh, his yardage book back at Oakmont 50 years ago and how it's changed. So can you hang on? We'll chat. Oh, Mark. There you go. He's going to Mark. All right. We'll play through. Stay tuned after this. More with the Caddy here on Real Golf Radio. Back to Real Golf Radio with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper. All right, welcome back to the show. Brian and Bob with you here on Real Golf Radio, brought to you in part by Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Are you going to sell some of those Jailbird, Ricky, and Wyndham putters after the, what we saw last week? Probably. <laughs> uh, you can check it all out at CallawayGolf.com. And we're continu- continuing now with America's favorite caddy. Okay, so what was interesting, too, about Wyndham Clark is uh, his, his confidence and the way he described some of the things that happened, I wanted to play a cut for you and, and, and just get your reaction because it was, uh, it was certainly a, a, a great test for Wyndham. Sorry, I'm just going to cue this up real quick. And uh, here we go. I started off great, and I felt really good and confident about um, my game. You know, unfortunately, I bogeyed the second hole, but I felt like I rebounded well and birdied in the fourth. You know, I got a little unlucky on, on hole eight, but I just felt like I bounced back and kept my emotions about me. And, um, you know, I hit some great shots coming down at the end. And although I made a couple bogeys and it seemed like maybe 
the rails were coming off, I was inside pretty, uh, pretty calm. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased with myself with how I perform. I feel like I'm one of the best players in the world. And, you know, obviously this is just shows that what I believe is uh, can happen. And um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm a pretty humble, calm guy. And I, I don't try to get too high or too low in things. And, um, you know, I'm obviously going to celebrate this, but I, I like to compete. I like to I like to play against, I'm so competitive. I want to beat everybody, uh, but also be friends with everybody. So I'm trying to, I try to, you know, have a good mix of that. All right, there you go. That's a little bit about Wyndham Clark. He talked about getting lucky on eight. Wild that he hit it in the same spot I did on eight. It was, that's death. I don't know how he was even able to get it out the second time. He, he, he did, he would go on to say that if you were just out playing with your buddies, you would step on the bush to take your stance, which would reveal the ball. And it would have been a pretty easy up and down, he said, but he wanted to make sure he didn't do anything wrong. So called a rules official over. And the biggest thing is he couldn't see the ball. He couldn't see what he was swinging at. And that's why it got left in there. But, um, pretty, pretty cool to hear the way he took that confident approach into a situation that he's really never been in before. Yeah, that's pretty neat stuff. Um, hearing that he felt calm and confident down the stretch. That's a, that's a nice place to be when you've won one event and you're coming down the stretch of the U S open and you're just feeling like, yeah, I got this. And that's about as genuine sounding as anything I've ever heard someone say describing how they felt during a round. That's impressive. That's a, <laughs> that's the guy you want to caddy for right there. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and, but the great thing about it was he won a designated event at Wells Fargo. So he, he played all these guys and he beat all these guys that had to promote a lot of confidence in him coming down the stretch, hey, I've already beat these guys once. I can beat them right now. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, well, I can't say it doesn't matter what you say because what you say can affect, but the bottom line is it, it really matters what, what do you really believe, what's really going on in your head. So what you say essentially doesn't matter unless it affects what you believe, which it can't. I'm going around in circles. But anyway, um, <laughs> I got a question for you. So let's let's take the very best players like Jack and Tiger. Um, I, I'd like to say Ben Hogan, but we don't have enough footage. Um, have you heard Tiger say, "I feel like one of I'm one of the best players in the world ever"? Hmm. Or Jack? Or Jack? They. So my point is. Um, seems like the guys who are really the best players never mention the fact that they're that good. And I remember Verplank's coach, Mike Holder. Yeah. His line to Verplank one time was, he said, uh, if you're really good, you don't have to toot your horn because everybody else will toot it for you. Yeah. So I think it's cool when a guy says, I feel like I'm one of the best players in the world. He's just trying to say, you know, I, you know, he's confident about where he stands in this and that. I just think yeah. it's interesting that I can never recall hearing the very best guys ever say anything like that. They just never went there. You know, Tiger's Tiger might have said, I expect, I'm, I expect to win. Um, I guess that's another way of saying it, but yeah, I just, yeah, it's interesting. But they, they, hmm. I, I'm like, they, those guys never would say that the very, very best. Wow. 
That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I wanted to talk to you about yardage books, but we are going to run out of time because the, the cut that I wanted to play from Johnny is two minutes long and we only have about three minutes left. So that doesn't give you a lot of time to talk about it, but it, it was interesting and we can just kind of hit this much. He basically had to walk off his own yardages, didn't have any laser and he just kept notes on a card. And from, from where that has gone to where these guys are today, you know, especially playing a, a golf course like LACC that they've never seen before. And with so many different nuances, you know, I, I wonder if today's players would be able to step it off and eyeball it the way that those guys did back then. Those guys shot awfully good scores, stepping it off and eyeballing it. The conditions obviously were probably different. Um, I think it'd be hard to argue that it's not easier now to make a whole ton of putts that you couldn't make before because the greens are just pure mm, right. pool tape everywhere. So you can make a lot more putts than you, but they're, they're probably also a lot more slippery than they used to be uh, in general way back when. So it's hard to compare errors and it's a lot of apples to oranges, but I think, you know, I wonder having the precise yardage is obviously pretty nice, but is it really, as long as you have reference points, you know, Oh, from this tee, I hit a four into the front and a five iron to the back. And do you need a yardage at all? Really? You, I mean, for, for some shots you do for a lot of shots, you don't, you just know. And so maybe having the number precise like that is just part of the routine and it just makes guys feel more confident about it. But I don't know. I mean, the, the scores are a little bit better than they used to be when back when there were no books and no lasers and things like that and no yardages out there. The scores are a little better, but I don't know. It's, uh, I think it would be really wild to play an event with no yardages whatsoever. You just have to go out and do it the old, old school. No. Do it old school. You pace, you pace them off if you want or whatever. Ooh, right? I wouldn't take any time at all. Whew. That's what practice rounds are for. Well, he's just saying, yeah, I guess if it's an actual event, you'd have to quit, quit showing up on Wednesdays just to play the pro-am and then play the <laughs> tournament. Go out and do the work Monday, Tuesday. Oh. Right, Caddy? Old, old school right there. I'd, lo I'd love yeah. to see it. Let's talk it about awesome. Let's do this next week. We'll talk feel versus science because Wyndham Clark used to work with swing coaches. And he said his, everyone always said yeah. his swing looked great, but he didn't know. He said, I didn't know where the ball was going. And so now he just figures it out on his own. He doesn't have he a, owns it. a swing coach. So yeah. So right, Bob. So that he owns his swing. Same thing with the yardage just feel versus actual. Anyway, that, that'll be a fun discussion. We'll table that for next week. Caddy, good stuff. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Thank you, gentlemen. There you go. That's the caddy right here on Real Golf Radio. we got to take a short break. We'll come back and wrap up the show next. You're listening to Real Golf Radio. You're listening to Real Golf Radio. Talking golf with Brian Taylor and Bob Casper. One day you'll get it. Here's Brian and Bob. Thanks to everybody who joined us today. The caddy, you heard from Boyd Summerhays in hour number one. Really appreciate you for tuning in as well. You know what? Putting a bow on this thing. Wyndham Clark, I think the caddy said it best. It's it's very rare that somebody goes out and wins the U.S. Open. So often people lose the U.S. Open, and then someone's a benefactor of that. But Wyndham Clark won the U.S. Open. He put himself there, and he did not lose it. He played great all the way down the stretch, and he hoisted that trophy proudly. Yeah, you know, after those two bogeys on 
the 15th and 16th holes, um, he held on. He had great shots coming down those last two holes, and he made a great two-putt uh, two from 60 feet on the final hole, and that's how you finish off a tournament and become a champion. So he did go out and win that event. Let us know what you think and how, what you thought of that uh, U.S. Open, especially L.A. Country Club. Love to hear from you. At Real Golf is where you can give us a tweet. That is going to do it for us. we got a lot to talk about. We already teased what we're going to talk with the caddy about next week. We also have player meetings and a bunch of stuff coming out of Travelers. We've got yep. the KPMG Women's PGA Championship at Baltusrol. We're not too far away from the Women's Open at Pebble Beach. Lots to get to, so be sure to tune in next week right here on Real Golf Radio. For Dave Glauser and Bob Casper, I'm Brian Taylor. Good to be with you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Real Golf Radio with Brian Taylor and Bob Gasper. Follow us on Twitter at Real Golf and join us every week on the Real Golf Radio Network. <laughs>